0: This is the Edisto TV Podcast, connecting the Blackwater region.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Edisto TV Podcast. This is episode 17. I'm here with Tom. Say hello, Tom. Hello, Tom. And we are once again going to be featuring part of our interview with Ann Timberlake of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina, part two of two on today's show And, uh, of course, last week we talked to Ann about her background and her work with the conservation voters of South Carolina. So this week we'll continue with our conversation about the water withdrawal issue, the Edisto River, and some of her thoughts on how we might work with other stakeholders to develop solutions that work. Uh, Tom, any thoughts about what Ann had to say in last week's episode before we move on?
0: Yeah, I I just found her, since she's in the middle of this political situation, you know, she's very uh, empathetic, I think, to the politicians and you know she she's real careful to say how you know this first cut at the service withdrawal act was a mistake but it was a mistake that was jointly made by pretty much everyone involved and and uh, hopefully we get the right people on board to try to change this thing uh, this session
1: and i i don't know that she would even agree completely that it was a mistake I, i i think that you know It it made a lot of positive ground on the part of the issue that they were most attuned to at that point, which was the possible commercial or municipal use of water from the rivers and other surface waters, and and that just they didn't foresee the agricultural issue becoming what it has become. And uh, certainly that the first new registration under uh, that 2010 Surface Water Withdrawal Act uh, turned out to be somebody who was uh, initially asking for 800 million gallons a month plus, uh, I think sort of just underlined for them what they hadn't really foreseen in the law.
0: Yep, just I think what she said was, you know, we make current acts better. You know, I mean, that's that's what we want to do. And so just take what we have done and, and try to improve upon it.
1: And And like we've talked about before, you know, All we really want is for the law to do what the law says it's supposed to do. That's right. All right, so moving along from there, um, one of the things we were talking about before we sat down to record this episode was that after a summer where we were kind of wondering what was up with our potential partners in the Edisto TV Technology Initiative, I understand you've uh, seen some motion on that that front?
0: A little bit of motion. I'm very excited. We are getting high-speed fiber internet in the small town of Sally November 1st is the plan right now and so uh that's exciting uh Wagner Springfield and Perry will be coming very shortly after that and so we still intend on using this kind of as a home base to uh try to roll out wireless internet to the rural areas outside the town limits and so uh we've got Atlantic Broadband uh, legal team now working on some contracts and things like that so we're Back where I thought we would be about two months ago but we're we're back on track, and uh we've got a couple of uh interested parties who are uh, wanting to get this high speed internet and test it out from outside the town limits and so we've got uh I think the ball's starting to roll a little bit
1: all right, so just to recap a little bit for my own memory, um, my understanding is that Atlantic broadband is going to be running the fiber out this way and then uh, we're going to have a technology demonstration project locally here in Wagner initially to test the concept is that exactly right, right.
0: so we we'll, we plan to get the fast internet in Wagner um, beam it up to our water tower in Wagner and then we should be able to reach customers within about three miles of that tower and that's the plan
1: and, and to be clear uh, the customers we're talking about are people who are outside of the area that will be served by Atlantic broadband uh, but still within the range of the technology, the ubiquity stuff we are talking about, Exactly,
0: right. right. So they, they'll have exclusive uh, rights to the town limits, but if you're outside the town limits within three miles of that tower, we should be able to get you high-speed Internet at a very good price.
1: And if folks want to know more about that, there is a link they can click on the TV page. And they can make inquiries there and get personal and attentive service from Tom Slyker. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. There's uh, two big buttons. One says, I want internet. One says, I want to invest. Either right. one. We we like both. Perfect. Well, we look forward to hearing from you on that. And
1: uh, as the progress goes forward on the infrastructure, we'll be talking more about uh, what's going to be happening with the pilot project here around Wagner. Anything else on that before we move along?
0: Nope, just uh, looking forward to, I'm, I'm I'm 3.2 miles from the water tower, so we don't know if it's going to work here. I don't know if I'm going to get high-speed internet in this first round, but I'm going to do everything I can to try. All right, I look forward to another update as soon as there's something to update on that. Speaking of
1: updates, uh, let's talk about what's up this week online, uh, stuff that's linked on the Edisto Concerns page Uh, there's World Rivers Day, and I don't know if folks are really familiar with World Rivers Day, but it is a thing that started actually up in Canada with BC Rivers Day. The first World Rivers Day was in 2005, I believe, and, uh, we found out about it a little late, so unfortunately we are not going to be, uh, organizing anything formal for World Rivers Day, but it is this coming Sunday, the last Sunday in September, and uh, there is a link for it uh, on the Edisto Concerns page. We'll also link it on the show notes on the Edisto TV page. And uh, just a brief history uh, from their website. In 2005, the United Nations launched the Water for Life Decade to help create a greater awareness of the need to better care for our water resources. Following this, the establishment of World Rivers Day was in response to a proposal initiated by internationally renowned river advocate, Mark Angelo. And uh, so they first celebrated in 2005. That makes this the 10th annual World Rivers Day. I'm gonna get out on Sunday and do some paddling on a river close to me, specifically the North Fork of the Edisto. And uh, I encourage others to do the same or to visit the site and find out about a more formalized celebration of the day and uh, do what they feel like doing about that. Anything on World Rivers Day from your side of the mic?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good day to get out and celebrate our uh, rivers while we have them. I did
1: also link earlier this week an editorial from the Huffington Post called Don't Think of a Clean River from a woman named Margie Alt, who is the Executive Director of Environment America, Um, Something that has been ongoing that we haven't really talked about here on the podcast yet is changes to the Clean Water Act. And EPA and various politicians have been going back and forth and round and round on this. Um, Not surprisingly, one of the big issues here has to do with the agricultural interests um... finding themselves in some ways in opposition to the interest in strengthening the provisions of the clean water act which i think originally went into uh... place back in the seventies um... i i put a link up of a google search on the clean water act on the edisto concerns page we're not gonna sit here and slug through that now but i invite anybody who might be interested in it to go online and uh... take a look at some of the background information there and also to read this uh, editorial by ms alt because she really does sort of spell out i think fairly clearly what the stakes are from the point of view of people who have an interest in enjoying uh... rivers recreationally another one of the items that is on our agenda is apparently we failed to mention before they had their final river trip of the year but our friends over at the Bamberg Chamber of Commerce, Jerry Bell and those guys, uh, did have their last river trip uh, with the chamber, I think, last weekend. And so we missed mentioning that, but we sure hope they had a great time. And the good news, the Tom?
0: Good, the good news is that they, uh, the chamber agreed to do this for another year. So 2015, uh, great opportunity to go down to Bamberg County and... Take advantage of a free shuttle and some good, uh, friendly service and drivers, and uh, definitely a, a great service that they're providing, great way to get people out on the river. So check out uh, Bamberg Chamber of Commerce. We'll put links out on the show notes. But uh, definitely plan plan a weekend in 2015. Go down to Bamberg and check out the river.
1: Excellent. And uh, I will say I really enjoyed our day paddling with them uh, back in August, I think it was, or was it July? It might have been the end of July we went with them. But that was a good day on the river, and uh, if they're going to do it next year, I believe I'll probably go down and do some of that with them. Um, Another thing that really ties more to the water quantity than water quality thing is I linked a story from our friends uh, over in the Flint River Basin over in Georgia. The Flint River Keeper originally posted this article I linked, and it talks about the Florida... Um, government officials either restricting or shutting down completely the oyster harvest in Apalachicola Bay because there's not enough fresh water coming into the bay to allow the oyster fishery there to uh, act as it has uh, traditionally, historically. And, you know, this is another example of what potentially could happen if we don't see sufficient flows in our rivers is it's not just what happens to the river ecosystem it's that whole system in the estuary and the salt marshes out on the coast where if you don't get enough freshwater flow into there things can get too saline for some of the species to reproduce or else it's just flat too dry for aquatic species to make a living where they traditionally have so again this is not a set of issues that is unique to the edisto river it uh, is happening all over the country, all over the world, and I thought that the article from um, the folks at the Flint River Keeper cast an interesting light on that part of it.
0: Also on the uh, Edisto concerns, uh, we posted the article uh, from, I think it was the Aiken Standard, which uh, and probably the state paper too, but uh, they have declared an incipient drought for the Edisto River Basin. Uh, we had the privilege of sitting in on a phone call with the uh, state climatologist and and hearing her with her committee, kind of everybody chiming in. And, and, you know, most of the state has got plenty of water. But uh, the river, if you look at the river levels, the Edisto continues to lag. And um, so they did declare uh, drought, incipient drought, in I think it was about seven eight counties, something like that.
1: Yeah, basically the counties that make up the Edisto River watershed except for the coastal counties because along the coast, they've actually had a fair bit of rain.
0: That's right.
1: All right. So, and then one last item that we posted a link to on Edisto Concerns is our ma'am Bob Guild, who was kind enough to come on the uh, podcast with us. When was that, episode 10, I think you said? Episode 10. Um, Bob Guild has been honored by the conservation voters of South Carolina at the green tie luncheon, which they had last week. And uh, in the section of the interview that we put up last week, and talked a bit about what that event was. But if you want to know all about the man behind the lovely, mellifluous voice that was uh, gracing the podcast a few weeks ago, there is a good article there um, linked on Edisto Concerns. We'll link it in the show notes talking about Bob and what a super-duper guy he
0: is. And, and see, when I heard his voice, I did not think it was mellifluous. Really? But, but maybe it was.
1: I think he's, he's got musical pipes. But anyway, um, so congratulations to Bob Gild on that. We appreciate the Conservation Voters of South Carolina recognizing his many years of stellar work on behalf of environmental interests. And with that, we are going to take a quick break here on the Edisto TV podcast. When we come back, we'll have part two of our interview with Ann Timberlake of the Conservation Voters.
0: Hey, this is Tom from the podcast. It's football season and Tyler Brothers has Carhartt collegiate gear for Carolina Clemson and Georgia Bulldogs fans. We also have beautiful game day brand boots at $100 off their list price. Visit the store in Wagner or check them out online at tylerbrothers.net. Tyler Brothers, the place to go when you want to stay away from no superstars. For more information and archived podcasts, visit us at edisto.tv.
1: So welcome back to the Edisto TV podcast. This is episode 17 And as I suggested when we were heading into the break, we are now going to jump into part two of our interview with Ann Timberlake of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina. Uh, Tom, anything you want to say to preface this before we jump into it?
0: Nope. Just, uh, you know, she's a great advocate for our rivers as well as uh, all all the environment in South Carolina, and she's certainly worked hard to uh, make headway and, and, and change the face of conservation in South Carolina.
1: Okay, and with that, back to our interview from the other day with Ann Timberlake.
0: Everything I've seen and heard from you seems to be about a balanced usage of our natural resources. I mean, I, I, how do you stand? Do you feel like you you propose uh, a balance?
2: Oh, absolutely. In the conservation community in South Carolina, I think has always been very uh, mainstream. We work with Republicans and Democrats uh, Unfortunately, a lot of environmental issues in Washington, D.C., have gotten very polarized and sort of branded with one party or the other. And that is not true in South Carolina. And I think it is goes back to sort of this being balanced. Um, we like to think that we can protect our natural resources and promote prosperity. A lot of times it's kind of the, when we have differences, it's because we're not looking at the long view. And sometimes there appears to be, you know, an immediate gain to be made. Um, but when you look at the long view, you know, as conservationists, we come in and, you know, ask sometimes some tough questions about, you know, I mean, stewardship. Stewardship is a very, um, I would say, conservative notion. It's grounded in a lot of our religious beliefs, being responsible and good stewards. And passing on to future generations. And so when we think that way, I think we're more likely to be in agreement. It's more, you know, it's more when there's like an immediate, um, you know, promise of jobs. I mean, yeah, we, we've got to find a balance.
0: I read a, a an article today that uh, Hugo had shared up on the Edisto Concerns, and it was about the San Joaquin River out in California. And mm-hmm. um, this guy had tried to uh, kayak from the very top of the headwaters in the Sierra Nevadas or wherever it is in the mountains, and was going to go all the way down to, um, to, uh, San Francisco and, uh, the Golden Gate, and, you know, there's places along in there where, like, a farm literally takes all the water out of the river, and then it's a mud hole for, like, 50 miles after that, and, um, you know, they talk to farmers and, people that uh you know so well that's just the way it is you know i bought this land for the water and you know it's i get to keep the water and use the water and you know yes it's a mud hole but you know there's more water downstream if you if you just drive another 60 miles you can you know there's another river that flows in and so um i mean obviously over the last hundred years that has happened um could that ever happen in south carolina
2: Well, I am not a lawyer, but we do have different water laws. You know, in the West, a lot of property, I mean, if you go to buy property in the West, you have to be very careful about whether you're buying, I mean, if you're buying water that you think you're going to be able to, say, irrigate your garden from a river, you've got to know whether you have a water right that comes with the property. We don't have that same law here, and I've... And I'm sure that'd be a good that'd be a good podcast you know you could have one uh just it, it going to the you know, historical difference about the, i think it's maybe because we harken back to sort of older uh established law that our rivers are the, the public has a public uh, there's a correct term for for it, but there's a they have a public uh interest in our waters and in our rivers in that sense. We're not quite, I suppose, as vulnerable, but I think that means we have a very big responsibility then to manage this this water that is that the public has an interest in. So, um, you know, it it could obviously we, we're seeing already the, the incident with the Little Salcha earlier this summer where it practically quit flowing and there was a fish kill. Um, you know, I don't know that we've been able to pinpoint that to a particular withdrawal, or at least not a registered withdrawal. But that something is going on, particularly in these rivers that are the lower part of the state that are, you know, where there's a, a, a very large connection between groundwater and surface water. Um, I know there's always been some historical um, there have been patterns where some of these rivers have become very braided and uh, spread, you know, out, and at certain times of the summer there's been less flow. But it's, it, it, I think it is a red flag Plus, to have these incidents happening right now. And I, I remember at that January meeting there were one or two people who said, well, you know, have you been to the, um, um, well, the Texas border? I have jumped over the Rio Grande there at Big Bend National Park where it's just such a trickle. I I remember when we were out there, I remember, and this was kind of shocking because that that reduced amount of water that is coming in at that point, and that is uh, the river may change lower down because there are tributaries that come in. But at that point, the biggest tributary was coming out of Mexico, really the, the 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 river itself coming out of the United States was essentially being tapped. And, you know, again, with the Adisto, I go back to this. I think um, think a lot of people have talked about it. I feel like we have an added responsibility because it lies wholly within South Carolina. We cannot point to North Carolina in the case of the Catawba and say, you're holding back too much water. Uh, You need to release more. We have no impoundments on the Edisto, and the Edisto is wholly within our state. So I think that's, you know, we do have a real, we need to be good stewards because it is ours.
3: And since you were there at the beginning of the existing uh, Surface Water Withdrawal Act, I I, want to run by you in just a few words the way that we've been explaining what we think we want in terms of looking for a solution okay. to the current situation and 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 get your reaction to that you know early on tom and uh, some of the other people involved here in wagner had come up with the four things that we thought were deficiencies in the yeah. existing rule and as sort of an extension of that we've been talking recently about the three things we think we want at this point in order to fix the situation Number one is at some point there needs to be a threshold where agriculture goes under the permit process instead of the existing registration process. And our thinking there is a lot of the deficiencies that we see in the agricultural registration process, like the absence of public notice and public input, um, the range of things that permittees have to do in terms of having a plan B and in terms of, you know, having to maintain minimum stream flows. Time limits. Yeah, all those things would be covered by moving them under the permit process. So then the other two things we think we want are the addition of minimum stream flow requirements, and we see that as being something that needs to happen as part of the permitting process. And then the final thing that we're talking about is the existing safe yield formula um, we contend doesn't really provide a number which is safe, and so we think that the safe yield formula needs to be readdressed. Um, Does does that match with your sort of take on where we stand?
2: It does. Um, It may take – we may have to do this in phases. I would say that the most – the the simplest message – I think for the public and for legislators to hear is that we must end the exemption for the, the very large agricultural withdrawal. I mean, the, it's really like an industrial farm. It's in, so, and we're not saying we like or dislike industrial farms. We're just saying there's a threshold. Yes, absolutely. With that, that and I and I agree. That should then just be a permit the same kind of permitting process that industry has and 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 that contingency requirement and public notice would all be provided through that mechanism I think we're going to hit we're going to probably there's no question that we do need to to redefine safe yield this safe yield right now is based on an average uh, our rivers don't have average flows year round, um, and the minimum stream flows are these are these are these are refinements that we need, and I think there will be some argument that we need to have. Um, we do have data. You know, there's been an attempt to say we don't really have scientific data. We have scientific data on those USGS um, stations that go back for many many years. I think. Uh, when we were passing the Surface Water Act there, I mean, there were some folks, scientists especially, who were like, this is premature. We need to have more data so we can um, have variation within watersheds. Watersheds are different, um, different, um, uh, you know, low countries different than the upstate. So I think it becomes more complicated when we tackle those, and, whether we can do all of this at one time, I don't know. But I do think that we we really have, need to immediately address this sort of drain hole that we have right now, which is just an open registration. And that's not even protecting agriculture.
3: Um, I just I don't understand how the various people who are opposing changes can say that, Safe yield is safe if it allows for removal of everything in the stream four times over.
2: That formula needs to be changed. I think it just gets those things get harder to do if the legislature um, and I think the immediate the immediate thing is to get this threshold defined. and honestly, I think a starting point would be just to say that it would be what it is for industry and then we can you know have a conversation about that and i think if we got some of the other you know one negotiating point might be that we would we would put a higher threshold for the ag for ag to get a permit if we had some of these other points refined you know so maybe there's a menu so that you know if they if they if they want we can't get you know um, if we can't get traction to uh improve safe yield or minimum in stream flows then yeah we're gonna we're gonna probably want a, a lower threshold I personally think we'd be more willing to take a higher threshold for ag but we as long if we had the safe yield addressed so you know there might it's good we need to talk about them all, but I think we need to recognize that we need to make um, the simpler that we make this the more likely we can probably get something fast.
0: I got a a question kind of related. What can we do? You you mentioned that you know the calculations for safe yield in a a perfect world would be different for every river system because some some rivers stay within their banks all the time and then others like the Edisto overflow their banks and fill up the swamp and you know, so so the amount of rare, uh, different calculations and different uh, definitions maybe of safe yield. but um what is there any way we could uh, do something particularly for the Edisto that would define what is safe and good for the Edisto that might be might not have anything to do with the Congaree or some other rivers. but what can we do specifically to try to protect the the Edisto in particular?
2: Well, there has been some talk about doing perhaps even a separate bill that would just um, uh, direct more resources, state resources, to uh, to focus on the Edisto. Maybe, I mean, there is some, we've been, uh, there's been some encouragement that the state, I mean, the legislature has funded DNR and DHEC to do some more sophisticated water modeling. Um, they'll be working also with Clemson on some public input and feedback, feedback into that. It's, they did not get as much money as we thought, and we really had hoped they would try to ask for more money. It's not this will take three to four years. And it's looking now like they have chosen a vendor that will give them maybe a less active model in and instead a more static sort of spreadsheet. It's still a step forward, but I don't think we can afford to wait three or four years on that information. So so one idea is to to direct something specific to the Edisto. I mean, I suppose you could pass legislation setting up a separate sort of permitting or registration for the Edisto itself and just treat it differently. Um, That's kind of a little bit premature. I don't know that we've gotten to that point. But... I think there is, uh, and, and you know, on the one hand, I like that idea. On the other hand, sometimes you have to use public, um, use the opportunity when the public's engage, engaged to to do the big picture, and not and not sort of cop out just to do a portion of the picture. Because all we have rivers in the PD and elsewhere that may not match the same geography as the Edisto, but they're threatened as well. So I don't know. We're having, you know, this, this, is, a, this is a time to be talking about these ideas. Um, I think there is also, you know, there needs to be talk about um, voluntary conservation along the Edisto. Um, we know that just protecting land does not equate to ensuring adequate flows in the river but it is part of the picture and so getting more more land uh, you know voluntary conservation easements um, so, along the river would be good too.
0: Okay so h- how do we get started doing that because I, I think um, that that's kinda of the ideas that I've been thinking about is you know what if you did have people that said I, I want to protect the river I own X thousand acres on the river or, or a few hundred or whatever it is but I want to protect the river so I'm willing to say that I will or will not do certain things um, what, what's the process for that and and how can we help uh, people do that that are interested?
2: Well we have you know great partners uh, with our land trust and you have a number of land trusts that are in the Edisto Basin um, the, there's a I think it's the Aiken Aiken has a land trust. I'm trying to remember its exact name. The conservation bank, I mean, this isn't, uh, it's not directly related, but a lot of the funding for um, placing conservation easements, I mean, uh, a landowner can donate a conservation easement, but a landowner can be reimbursed for a conservation easement, too. and so um, the Conservation Bank is a source of funding for conservation easements and other, um, actually, the purchase of, of, of land. I think Conservation Bank monies was used. You know, there's that, what is it, the Tortoise Reserve or, or something that's along, is it the South Fork of that? I suppose? There's a Tortoise Yeah,
3: that's the Aiken Gopher Tortoise Preserve.
2: There was some property, I believe, added to that. By uh, as a conservation bank project that was conservation bank money, the, the conservation bank. We will have a major initiative um, at the state house next year to hopefully increase funding for the conservation bank and to um, either extend or remove there's a sunset to the conservation bank the, it would it would cease to exist in 2018, and um, so we will we will have. Uh, a bill that would um, strengthen the conservation bank next year—that you know would be somewhat tied to efforts along the Edisto because it is one of the—it's uh, one of the best sources of public funding. When I started out and mentioned that land and water conservation fund, that is federal money that also can come into the state, but it ten- I think it would tend to go—it's not as flexible and it tends to go more to. I think, public projects uh, with Land and Water Conservation Fund. But I think that would be, um, yeah, I mean, I think absolutely we should look at that. You know, you've probably done it, but you need to just map out all the large land holdings, I suppose, on the river, and that's kind of the obvious place. Now, small landowners can be involved, but you get, you know, sort of as a beginning point, I think to get momentum going, it helps to, if you can get some key land owners to step up and do that. And, you know, you can still have working farms and forests and just, just um, put the easements that would prohibit certain types of more intense development. Or maybe, I'm not, I'm not an expert on conservation easements, but I assume you could even direct them towards water use.
1: And that's Ann Timberlake of the Conservation Voters of South Carolina. Really would like to thank Ann for the uh, time she took and the thoughtful discussion that she had with us about some of these issues. Um, Tom, anything you want to go to to wrap up uh, our conversation about what Ann had to say before we move along?
0: Uh, No, just that I think between her and all these other environmental groups, you know, hopefully we're uh, gearing up. I know they're meeting with Farm Bureau uh, they've met once and they're going to meet again. And so hopefully we're going to try to get some consensus to make some changes to this uh, law, this this next session. We're going to work hard to get there.
1: You know, you mentioned all these environmental groups, and it does get a little confusing because there are a lot of us out there who share a lot of the same concerns, but we don't necessarily all talk to each other. One of the things that we linked a few days ago on the Edisto Concerns webpage that bears mention is there has been a lawsuit filed Uh, by some property owners along South Carolina Rivers, none of them on the Edisto, actually. um, But they have filed a lawsuit saying that the way ag withdrawals are treated under this uh, 2010 Surface Water Withdrawal Act um, is not the same as other users' request for water is being treated. So, So I don't even really know what the details of the lawsuit are, but it is out there. And we are going to follow up on that.
0: And also, kind of uh, interestingly, uh, our friend Doug Busby, uh, his picture showed up with this article on the front page of the state paper, I believe, and in the Aiken Standard. and And Doug really has nothing to do with it, but at the same <laughs> he's time, he's just a poster child for this issue. Yeah, now. yeah. So he he sent in a picture of Goodland Creek, the picture that we posted a few weeks back, and that was in the state newspaper, but you know, showing the the low water. But uh, it was kind of ironic because, you know, Doug, you know, heard he was on the front page of the paper for what? He said, well, aren't you suing so-and-so? But he's not. And, uh, no. But there is a group, and, and this is an issue. I mean, when you give certain groups special treatment and, and, you know, basically give them right to take water that then will not flow downstream, you know, they're, they may have a point. I don't know if they'll get anywhere with the lawsuit, but I think it's, uh, you know, another thing to address as we, as we proceed with this law.
1: Well, um, I did link stories about it that appeared in the state press coverage. Uh, When was it? I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now that that happened. And um, maybe we should follow up and try to talk to the folks who are filing that uh, for a future edition of the podcast. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Edisto TV podcast. See you next time, Tom. Bye-bye.
0: This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.